All right. All right. My name is Tony Kellen. I'm with the Wendell um, architectural team, design team, and I'm going to be leading the discussion. Do we want to do introductions, do you think, Adam, at all? How many folks do we have on 12? Actually, I think what we'll do is I'll do an introduction, and then uh, when you speak, um, we have a small enough group right now where you can just either raise your hand on the screen or just unmute and um, announce yourself and uh, give input. Um, I think this is like our 12th meeting since Monday. Um, it's our second public meeting. And uh, so two things. Um, the first thing is that we want to just describe the project that we're looking at. There's really two main components to it. Um, the multimodal facility, which is at Bob Billings and Crestline is one, pro one project. Um, it's going to have uh, 10 bus bays for the city operation and the KU operation, and then two additional bus bays for uh, intercity carriers, Greyhound, K10 Connect, um, that type of thing. We'll also have uh, provisions for kiss and ride, drop off, um, bicycles, bicycle storage, uh, and then a four to 5,000 square foot passenger waiting facility. Um, so it'll be a full service uh, bus center. The second is the downtown transfer center. And I'm sure going back to 2018, those of you that have followed this in the community, um, the project has now been kind of split into two projects. So the downtown uh, site is of a lesser scale than what was originally envisioned because of the uh, siting now of the multimodal out at Bob Billings and Crestline. So we're looking at five bus slots downtown and uh, some basic passenger amenities down there. Um, we've looked at five locations in downtown since Monday. Uh, all of them are city parking lots, three on Vermont and two on New Hampshire. Um, at this point, we've kind of, uh, we've got a couple of different foundational things that we're looking at. One is the design, and I'm gonna share my screen just quickly, just before we start the discussion. Wanna well, give me some ability there? I think I did, they have 12. Yes, you can share. Okay. And I'm just gonna bring up a very basic diagram. Um, so in both of the uh, bus facilities that we're going to be uh, designing, we're using uh, a sawtooth bus bay design. And essentially what that means is that uh, whether it's downtown or whether it is out at Bob Billings, every bus can have a designated slot because each bus can pull into their slot at an angle, a board and deboard passengers, bicycles and so forth. And then they're able to pull out and around the other vehicles without uh, any impediment. So you have really the maximum flexibility with Sawtooth in order to uh, move the vehicles in and out. And so that'll bring a lot more uh, regularity to the downtown operation, especially uh, because right now it's whatever bus comes in first, that's the one in line and you're, you're hunting for your bus. So um, with that, um, we don't really have designs to show yet. Um, we do have, uh, we could probably answer some questions, but at this point, what we'd like to do is just get your feedback and what things are important to you as a community, uh, what types of amenities you'd like to have. Um, 
Does anybody have any questions about what a sawtooth bus bay is or, or how that looks or works? Because we're happy to answer that before we get started. I have another one that I can show too. Here's another photo. This is an actual built facility. I think I need to stop sharing and reshare. Yeah. Yep. Um, this is an actual built facility in Virginia. So here's an example of a real life uh, sawtooth design. So you see the long center canopy and buses pull on each side of it. And this one uh, has the ability to do 10 buses. Can everybody, just so everybody, can everybody hear me okay? Is my sound coming yep. through good? Okay, thanks, Margareta. Mm -hmm. So this is a real world example of a bus bay. So these are some of the things we're you know, looking at for both locations, uh, probably not as grand a scale as this, obviously for the downtown with the space constraints that we have. But again, we're looking at covered canopies, seating areas, uh, ample sidewalks for people to be able to maneuver between buses. Um, and then um, I think the plans are to have electronic signage, some wayfinding, tell you where, what bus is where, when it might be coming next, um, those types of things. So I think I want to just stop talking at this and, point. And bike amenities. And yes, and bike amenities at both uh, locations. So let's, uh, I'm going to stop the share. We're going to put our whiteboard up. Um, what we're doing with that is we're, we've been capturing throughout the week people's comments and we're trying to reflect that in our designs. Um, so I want to open it up to the floor and uh, let you uh, start giving us your thoughts. Who wants to be the first to break the ice? Well, I could I could introduce some random uh, thought more or less. Uh, the uh, uh, building that's right now at Crestline and Bob Billings is actually home for um, of a number of art people from KU, and uh, they're basically um, just sort of occupying the spot. But I think it, it's important important to engage that group and in particular with the, uh, the art uh, elements. Um, you know, they're, they're making use of buildings that are currently unoccupied as artists do. Um, but I know I've had some conversations about what might, you know, what things they might put in there they're in, in terms of uh, uh, the public art. So that, that's just something to, to think about. Um, and then on that same element, um, you know, connecting the uh, multimodal facility with um, some of the West Campus natural areas in terms of trails and other other uh, foot access points. But that again is a minor a minor element. Good suggestions. Um, part of our stakeholder groups has been the KU faculty and staff, buildings and grounds architectural um, sustainability folks. And so, yes, um, good observation. We're looking at uh, bringing uh, to bear all those amenities that are out there. Um, we did walk the grounds today 
uh, actually went inside those buildings. And so we've had a lot of engagement uh, with the university uh, on those buildings and on that site. And then we'll be talking with Marshall Maud next week, um, specifically along with some other um, KU faculty. Um, so yes, we will get their commentary. Okay, yeah. I think another important stakeholder might be the uh, uh, Gregory Thomas, the director of the uh, uh, Center for Design Research, forgot his name, or Center for Design, I forget what it is, which is in the, the um, historic uh, farm building. So anyway, kind of integrating that, if we're going to be bringing people there, I think there's an opportunity to... Um, it's a Gregory Thomas. Yeah, but I, I always forget his name. But, but yeah, I know, I know. Is that where the, the wood fire kilns are? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're next door, but yeah, it, it, it's a wonderful place next to it. Yes, we saw it. Yeah, so sustainability is a big uh, part of it. I was looking behind your name. Uh, what does it say behind your name? Does it say environment? I, I teach in the environmental studies program, so I guess I'm sort of a ringer here. I should have been the uh, KU folks, but right. well, I'm also a community person. <laughs> Yeah, no, we definitely have noticed the what's out there. And um, I think our architects and designers are in our landscape architects, our civil engineers are all gonna embrace what's out there and see how we can build something that fits with the natural environment out there. That's something that I will be working on over this uh, next year in terms of, of uh, trying to, how shall I say, have a more, uh, uh, thought out uh, approach to the to the currently undeveloped natural areas of West Campus, and so integrating places like the multimodal area, which would be a, a, a sort of an access point to a lot of things. So there will be, I think, a lot of opportunities to to do that. It sounds like you recognize that that corner is designated as the entrance uh, to the campus in the master plan. So is there a specific initiative that's going on, uh, Bob, in regards to that uh, site? Not, not yet. I need to kind of gather <laughs> gather people, but but this this will be happening over the next year. Uh, and and our focus really is on the other end of the hill. So this you know, where you're focused is kind of on the on the backside of where at the moment most of my interests and, and efforts are. But I, I think looking at that whole area. Um, that whole square mile really as a, as um, not just a place to put buildings. Understood. Okay, thank you. Connie has her hand raised. Connie, why don't you introduce yourself and go ahead. Hi, everyone. Uh, can you hear me well? Yes. Here you fine. Okay, uh, I am the intern at the uh, Douglas County Sustainability Office. And I came here to share that we are partnering with the Kansas Creative Art Industry Commission on doing work with the ethnic retail grocery stores in town uh, from a study we did with KU Center of Community Health and Development in 2019 um, to create a, a mural program that also assists with, um, that's also partnering with the Kansas Healthy Food Initiative um, with, um, funding for refrigerators and other needs for those grocery stores. 
So also thinking about the arts uh, that will be happening, um, the program is currently developing and uh, will be within the next year or so. Uh, Connie, can you do me a favor? Can you type into the chat what, what agency you're with? Yes. So we make sure we document that. I think I got it, but I'm not positive. Actually, could she did put up something. I think food retail study does this count. Yes. Thank you very much. That's very interesting. So you're talking about doing a art program around sustainability and food sustainability? No. Uh, so I am part of I'm in uh, part of the Douglas County Sustainability Office, which uh, also staffs the Douglas County Food Policy Council. Uh, gotcha. Okay. Yes, so part of the work is uh, with the food systems and part of the food systems is the ethnic food retailers. Um, so there's a few levels to that. Um, but we are uh, partnering with the Kansas Creative Art Industries Commission and I'll put a link on the chat as well to create a mural program and also um, expand some economic development within this uh, ethnic food retailers in town. Interesting. That's cool. Okay, who else do we have on the call here? Let's capture that link. I want to read that study. Uh, Jessica? I'm, I'm just here for observations. I don't have any comments to add. Okay. I've participated in some other Forgive me, Jessica, who do you represent? Are you just a citizen? Uh, I Lawrence shouldn't say Douglas just a citizen, but. Lawrence Douglas County MPO. Oh, oh okay. okay, great. So I guess can I ask you a question then? That would sure. be you on the phone. Sure. <laughs> um, from the regional perspective, do you have any thoughts? Do you have, have you heard any opinions relative to um, the transfer station? and needs or wants of ridership, whether it's choice riders or whether it's student riders or whether it's, um, you know, workers and, you know, employment riders. Um, from, a, from a regional perspective, are you, are you guys tuned in to anything specific that we should be thinking about from a design perspective or a programming perspective? Um, I think Adam would have participated in all those conversations that we've had with the Regional Transit Advisory Committee, which is the human service and paratransit providers in Douglas County. And many of them should also have already been able to participate at different points during this week. I can't recall anything on the top of my head that they are specifically interested in. I know they're interested overall in the deployment of these projects um, just because they've been waiting for a while. Yes, we met with we met with most of them, I think, already this week, and we've heard from them. I just wasn't sure from a regional planning perspective if there was anything on your radar that we might not be aware of. Um, no, I know there's occasionally efforts on behalf of the state to work on some commuter bus service. Um, I'm not sure, and Adam can probably fill you in some of the history that's happened in that conversation between Topeka Metro and Lawrence um, in the past, and I'm not sure where that's going to go in the future. I imagine that'll take some state initiative and coordination to incentivize some of that um, in terms of regional stuff. Sure. Yeah, a number of years ago, they had done a... Um, they had a grant program. They had been pooling some money for commuter intercity bus service. And we were exploring uh, service between Topeka and Lawrence. There were 
um, challenges with who was going to own and operate that, which community felt like they were benefiting the most from that. So that, that was really tough to get off the ground without the stages doing it. Um, having like one community have to be the champion of it. So um, I know upcoming, they're going to take another look at the I-70 corridor between Topeka Lawrence, Kansas City, and uh, kind of in a refreshed way, think about what that might look like. Um, so that might be keep our eye on that as far as what might come to the new center. Yeah, I could see that being an impactful thing. I mean, I'm assuming it would be coach service type of a service. Um, and we're going to accommodate that within the program. So, but um, it's pretty common thing that we see, you know, especially when you're, when you sit in the middle between two major, um, you know, urban areas. So yeah, keep us posted on that. That's kind of exciting actually, because you can be bringing a you know, critical mass of ridership, you know, a demonstrated corridor where a lot of people travel would be good for that type of service. And the question is always who's going to buy the buses, who's going to operate the service, sure. who's going to maintain it, who's got jurisdiction, all that. Yep. So. Typical, yeah, typical issues we see all the time. Yep. Okay. Is there anybody in the group that has any thoughts on the downtown transfer, the five bus uh, operate bus stop down there? I mean, other than it's long overdue um, and just ensuring that it's, you know, got enough space and is accessible enough that it really can be useful uh, to, to us. I think that's that's kind of what I think about it. <laughs> but when you say, when you define useful to the community, what types of things do you find useful other than just regular service um, on bus routes? Regular service, of course, central location, easy to get into and in, in and out of, and just thinking about all the challenges of, of getting space um, space downtown for public public purposes. So. Thank you. Anybody else have any thoughts on the downtown transfer center? I wonder um, if Jessica, you might be able to speak a bit about, we had some discussion around the um, long-term bike planning and what that looks like along Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, I wonder if you might be able to talk about some of the plans or vision for that, what we need to be thinking about. Sure, so the bike plan Lawrence Bikes has alignments for the bikeways that we anticipate are probably going to be higher comfort along Vermont and New Hampshire in the downtown. Um, the big hang up, I think, on developing something that's going to be a high enough level of comfort um, for all users is going to be removing parking. That has not been something that's been willing to be really entertained a very seriously. And so therefore on those streets, you see the most you see now is just shared lane arrow marking. So integrated traffic, shared street. Um, I think obviously for multimodal connections, we can expand access for people. If there are good bikeway connections, um, there, that will be important. And I think, you know, in our uh, previous planning of downtown parking in the central business district parking bike parking had previously 
um, not been required with development in the downtown because parking wasn't required um, in the central business district. Um, there have been some recent amendments to Article 9, which is parking. But I think for sure, you know, our first foray into long-term bicycle parking, something that's more secure in terms of a city investment is going to be important. We wrote some new requirements in Article 9 for private development for long-term bicycle parking. So I'm talking about bike cages, bike lockers, something that's more secure um, for somebody who wants to leave their bike for a longer period of time. Um, we know anecdotally a lot of uh, business workers downstairs or, or down, downtown get to bring their bikes in and store them in store basements, um, which is really not that convenient, um, probably for those people who are biking. Um, but they have to do that because of bicycle theft. In some cases, if they're working all day, they can't keep an eye on their bicycle. Um, that is an issue. And so there is incentive, I think, to find whether it be, you know, not only just with a transfer location downtown, but also in parking garages to deploy some longer term bicycle parking. Adam, did that get where you were wanting to go? Yeah, that gave us some good information. Yeah, I think so. Can you describe what's, what's a high comfort, um, did you say bike lane? For bike route. Yeah. So there's a variety different types of bike ways that we can design. The conventional one most people probably think of is a, a bike lane, which is just a painted stripe on a roadway with a bike symbol in it. Um, on the level, we have done a level of comfort analysis in our bikeway plan that talks about bicycling level of comfort for all ages. And really level of comfort on a bicycle is dictated generally by two things, the speed of the street and the volume of traffic on the street. So many local streets wouldn't necessarily, if it's a residential street, biking on the street in a shared environment is, is very comfortable. Or, you know, if the volume, as the speed and volume gets higher, the comfort that the, that the bicyclist experiences um, goes down um, unless the facility becomes more separated or more protected. So higher level of comfort bikeways include either a buffered bike lane, a, um, a shared use path or something that has, you know, physical barriers. So as we talk about increased speed and volume, our community has traditionally chosen to develop shared use paths as a shared biking and walking facility along higher volume, uh, higher speed streets. Those have just like every uh, piece of bike or ped infrastructure concerns about conflicts at crossings. And now every driveway along a street becomes a crossing. Um, and so there can be some safety can added safety concerns with that. But our new bikeway plan really focuses on level of comfort instead of just saying, put a bike lane down. Oftentimes though, we're retrofitting streets um, that are existing and we don't have um, excess right away um, or excess street payment if we're just doing a restriping project. And so oftentimes we still um, do something in lieu of nothing, um, but there's some, you know, there's argument for or against doing that, um, whether or not putting out more less comfortable stuff does you better or not. Um, and those are continuous debates you have based on which type of bicyclist 
you're looking at. Are you looking at someone who's wearing Lycra? They're going to be comfortable. They're going to ride no matter what the condition is versus somebody who might consider riding with their children. And the plan tries to start to address um, with the standalone bike money that we're working on projects more like the 21st Street Bike Boulevard, um, the new Hawk Crossing at 21st and Mass, um, the buffered bike lanes on and green pavement with the bike box on Massachusetts as projects that were scored better on level of comfort for users. We've had a lot of recent conversations also too about, um, if Connie's still on, about access to food. Um, if you've talked to our public health partners, there's a lot of concern about time poverty and some of that will, I think, play into the route redesign work. Um, but I think that's a big uh, consideration in terms of not only just built environment for biking and walking access, um, but thinking about how um, what we design makes trips like that work for people. Um, We took note of the uh, food desert situation in certain areas of town, and it's not unusual. I'll be honest with you, we see it quite frequently, and usually when we're working in transit in any city space, we see that as probably one of the biggest issues is the accessibility of fresh food. Um, it's not necessarily something that's in within our scope or purview, but it's certainly something we've been considering when we're looking at shared uses within the facility and what we should be recommending to add in this team. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. We did discover today, for the first time after being here for three and a half days, that we found the grocery stores. But it took us three, it took our team three and a half days to find the grocery stores. So if it takes us that long, it's like, okay, this is interesting because, you know, even when you look on Google, it does not take you to your grocery stores here locally, which is interesting too. It's in my notes to bring that up to you guys because I don't know what that is. But Taryn and I, they call Quick Star groceries. Yeah, they tell us all your gas stations that they, they, that is your grocery when you look as an out of town or coming into town. So that, we did several upon your, um, your uh, what's it called? The Merck. The Merck. The Merck. Which we fell in love with, of course. It's a very fine place to shop. Uh, but we just found today Dylan's, I think, for the first time it was called. So it was kind of interesting for us from our perspective. And we're like, where is all the food around here? There's always people, there's no food. It's um, a good, it's um, a good comment that Jessica makes because we are so on the service side of things. We are, um, you know, we serve mostly grocery stores with routes, but we're thinking about how people travel with carts, grocery shopping. So we've changed some of our cart policies to help accommodate people being able to grocery shop for more than they can carry on their hands. Um, looking at retrofitting buses for that. So on the design side of things. Um, you know, most of what we're looking at, obviously, is going to have, if it's got space for wheelchairs, we're going to have space for carts, but thinking about people traveling with food or carts with food might be an important thing so we to just, consider in this context. We stumbled upon, we're doing a project in Little Rock, Arkansas, a um, very similar project, only we're doing a TOD and a downtown transfer center, and two microtransit TODs um, in either sides of their town, one being an employment center, one being a very, when I say, um, environmental justice area, connecting them all to the city core. And um, you have a consultant that's working with them on our team. And the other guys, it's kind of creepy. I'm going to put it out there, but I'll tell you that everyone who's worried about being microchipped and tracked, they have a new program out there that's come out since COVID, actually, um, called Placer. 
And you should bring this up to your route design study folks and maybe even the MPO. They were able to gather all of the trip travel data for our for the ridership for Little Rock Transit. They said all the people who went to the downtown center at this period of time, here's where they came from, here's where they stopped and shopped, here's where they went to the doctor or the medical. We could see all of the trends. And then we were able to see pre-COVID trends, during COVID trends, and now coming out of COVID trends as well. So it was very interesting because they, too, their number one requirement for the downtown transit center was to bring food, to bring a grocer, because they have no grocery in, in the downtown urban core. Um, so it's really interesting to see how the people are leaving the downtown core to go, to go get their groceries or where they're not, actually. Um, so if anybody, anybody who lives with one of these in their pocket, they know everywhere we go and everything we do. And it's, it's kind of creepy, but at the same time, it's probably some of the most useful demographic data that we've actually been able to use to look at transit development, right? And how, how does that intersect with the, with the living environment? So interesting thing, you know, we might want to put that on your list of things to question. I had never seen it before. It just came out of the blue. Just to clarify, it's not individualized data. It's just not right. They don't know that Susan Sherwood got on the bus and we right. went on Route 11 and went to you know Dillard's and then went to the dentist. But they know that this person. I'm not gonna say they, maybe they do know. They probably do know actually that it was me. If you really wanted to get there, uh, wouldn't surprise me. But at the end of the day, they knew that every individual rider. They told us they were able to tell our client how many people got on that bus for that route that day and what times. As long as they had a cell phone. And believe it or not. No matter, most people, no matter what their economic status is, most people have one of these. Or someone within their traveling group has one. So it's very interesting when, they, when the client started to be able to see that, that trend data. But that might be something interesting for you guys when you're looking at um, the need to connect, right? Let me see the other participants and we can scroll down. I think. Can you do just view on the top right and just put it on the. Stretch it out here. I think. I can't see their names with the glares. I think that's most of us. I see Quiz is on again. Yeah. It's good to see him back. I'm super excited about the participation we're getting this week. Oh. We have 13 participants tonight. I apologize, everybody. Right at the end of the call, I had outage, so it took a couple minutes to get back on. Oh, no problem. No problem. Um, this is our last public engagement meeting for the week, so um, Connie, Connie has a question. Connie? Connie, go ahead. Hi, uh, so I, um, I'm also doing part-time work with the Kansas Creative Art Industries Commission. And uh, one of their field representatives, uh, maybe it's not particularly to Lawrence, but it's going to come to Lawrence soon. They're, one of their field representatives, um, artist Mona Cliff, is working on uh, a state program to create um, public art in bus stops. So that's something to um, keeping mind as well. She has, she has some beautiful moral, some murals over here in the hospital. So, Anna, how, how is the city planning to commission the art? So, yeah, let me talk about the art component of this project a little bit. So, um, 
Actually, we do know Mona pretty well. She helped facilitate a couple of uh, bus benches that were, were installed over at 11th and Delaware. So we worked with her recently. Um, so the since this project has been budgeted, there has been a component of public art included. Um, the way the city typically has uh, included public art at the Percent for Art program through buildings that, that we create. Um, the selection process for that goes through the uh, Cultural Arts Commission. So um, that's how we expect this process to go as well. Um, and, and early talks with Cultural Arts Commission, they were wanting us to get through the uh, concept phase before they got pulled in a little more intentionally. Um, so they kind of, kind of have something to react to. I think the idea is um, both we and them are open to uh, art in the sense of uh, something that would be placed on a pedestal at a facility as well as something that could be more integral to the actual facility itself. Um, you know, some examples that our uh, communications director had given from prior work are uh, you know, a certain type of flooring material or, or wall material that was uh, improved and enhanced from what we could have done um, to, to be kind of more integral component of the architecture itself. So it's pretty wide open, um, but I think we expect the selection process to go through the Cultural Arts Commission um, and, and manage that way. I had one question actually um, from, and not really mine, but, but conversations with other people about um, the fact that the, the transfers, the multimodal is, is so far away from the central part of town. I'm wondering how you're thinking about making sure that that doesn't just, you know, exist as an isolated space. Yep, and that's a good question. Um, so uh, really follows the work done in the 2014 and 2018 uh, studies to look at a location analysis and, and where it made sense. I think there are some, uh, we'll have to have certain intentionalities to make sure it functions well for our city. You know, part of the reason we're still looking at um, five bus bays in the downtown area are because the simple way our city is set up, that that's where a majority of the trips are going to need to interface, you know, routes are going to need to, to link together in that area because of uh, population and, and jobs and different things happening in that area. So um, not all the routes that are downtown are gonna be pulled over to the new facility area at Bob Billings and Crestline because it, it just won't make sense. Um, but I do think there's some operational opportunities there. Um, you know, it's jumping off point to campus. So I think it's a, a really easy campus connection. Um, you know, being central and being, you know, real close to the intersection of Bob Billings and Iowa gives us some real good opportunities for kind of corridor length routes uh, through town that they could create more um, uh, kind of obvious functional connections that you would take in a car. You know, tra traveling the, the length of Iowa Street right now in a bus is pretty hard, um, but hopefully it might be easier in the future with a, a facility like this. So we'll have to be thoughtful about it, um, but I do think it, it does provide some opportunities on, on how we think about its connection to campus, its connection to uh, you know, land patterns out west are a lot different than the east. So we'll be looking at things like on-demand microtransit as in addition to fixed route service as part of our route redesign study. And uh, this facility will be a good node for where some of that stuff comes together. 
Hey, Adam, uh, this is Quiz. Just wanted to follow up on Bob's question about, the, you know, kind of being far away or what's the center of Lawrence. What is actually the center point of Lawrence? I mean, you ask the KU students, they tell you <laughs> the university is the center of everything. But um, what truly is considered the center point of Lawrence? Or close to it. But if you uh, if you do look at the map, I mean, that that intersection is very central. You know, I think both earlier studies zeroed in on the area around 21st in Iowa, which is also pretty central. I see Margareta raising her hand. Maybe she has. I think that the geographic center of campus is around 19th in Iowa these days, maybe a little further west. Yeah, let's keep going west. 19th of Iowa. Iowa. So not far from our site. Yeah, so not far at all. Which is good. So I thought I would grab some public art and show you how public art has been incorporated into design. And to do that, I'm going to share my screen and then I'm going to let Scott Neal, who was the designer of the light rail stations that I'm going to show, let him do the commentary on it. I'll put him on the spot. <laughs> He's used to it. <laughs> this is in Phoenix. These are windscreens on the platform. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, so in, there's a pretty robust uh, artist program for the light rail stations. And obviously this is, this is role, this is, you know, light rail, not buses, but it's still, I think it's still relevant. Um, those are, um, those colored panels. Um, I'm going to close up for you. That's okay. So these colored panels that are inset in the perforated metal, um, this was a, this was a John Nelson project who was the artist. So he did these creative, uh, plasma cut, um, whimsical scenes, and then he powder coated them. And then uh, we would coordinate by setting those in. You know, this is, this is Phoenix, so it's all about the shade and, and ventilation. So, you know, I would say for our climate, this would be more along the lines of something that uh, you would, um, you wouldn't be using perforated metal. We'd be using something that's more opaque to block the wind. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a windy uh, climate here. Um, but, you know, visually interesting. I think um, children react well to it. Uh, I don't think we have pictures of it, but he did, uh, he did uh, as well, he did, he was commissioned to do 32 light pole standards, similarly. So the entire two mile stretch uh, really was a nice um, uh, integrated streetscape. That he did. I think I do have the light pole standard thing, but I was just trying to. Pretty. And so that is, what is not what is not part of the art is that uh, are those colored um, fiberglass above it, but it's kind of a neat story. Those are. Uh, those are FRP or fiber reinforced plastic. So we got to play around with um, uh, how to illuminate that and how you how you cast them and how you uh, how you color them. Um, but they're really um, give an interesting look. 
I think over all the stations and then and then those sales are um, again a shading that's uh, that's a Teflon uh, Teflon reinforced uh, fabric so uh, kind of give it a nice sleek look. And we've done other projects too where the public art became um, we had a historic station we did down in Virginia and in the um, terrazzo they embedded on train tracks to mimic the, the historic train that actually was on that site at one point in time. We've done others where there's terrazzo medallions in the floor or um, you know other types of murals on the walls and send the stations. We was telling a group this morning at the meeting that we did um, in Petersburg, they invited all the third and fourth graders from the entire city school district. We didn't, we didn't realize it was like over a thousand kids to the grand or to the groundbreaking, and each kid painted a tile in their um, in their theme of what does public transit mean to them because it was a huge student ridership population for that station. And now those tiles line the uh, corridors of the of the station. If you if you let me if you let me share, I'll show. Yeah. And so we worked with uh, an artist called uh, named uh, Hans Van Muen, and he's he's out of uh, Belgium, and uh, he did he did these uh, he did a fairy tale. Um, so there was, there, was a, there was a story. Um, there was a story on um, on how he was. Um, on, on one of the stations, so there was a there was a lamp, a long neck guy, and some chairs that were all suspended uh, up in the air. Um, but we we helped we helped them. Um, we gave them some references recently, and then he um, he said, "Hey, just so you know, I know you haven't been to Phoenix in a while, but here's here's what they did with." Uh, <laughs> My sculpture. So, <laughs> um, so they took the they took the you know it's just you know it's whimsical, but they did a you know they 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 took the public art and made it a health statement, and um, I guess uh, you know there's some signage go to it, you know like you know like you know even you know even even the artworks uh, being socially responsible. So, isn't he sitting on top of the right light rail station? Mm-hmm. Yes, he. All, all of these are sitting on top of the light rail station. So this is. Um, the other this is this is actually over the the point of sale um, where the ticket vending machines are. They're really close. When we're suspended, I've seen the yeah. 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 pieces in one. Not not on me. Um, so this was a very large scale public art project, um, where the city, you know, got a ton of grant money. From the Federal Transit Administration to encourage um, public art in the spaces. Um, so that's not our typical. Usually, we'll have like a one focus area within a station where you know you can focus those art dollars to make an impression. Um, for Petersburg's perspective, it was a period of time where FTA was encouraging a program called Children in Transit, where they were trying to make public transportation more inviting to children. In that case, they had a very large population of student riders in that city. And we actually wrote a white paper, which I could share with you, um, that studied children in transit over a period of time in the stations that we designed. It's probably five or six years old at this point. That was a white paper that was published by EFTA. Um, and it really looks at how you incorporate things like whimsical story characters and color and lighting to make it safer, more inviting, and less anxiety-ridden for children and also guide them so they know, like somebody, I think somebody mentioned on there, go here, this is the green line. I take the green line. I have to go through the green line. 
So it, it connects them to something relative. Um, so you'll see that there's all different types of points of view of art in transit is not just art. And it can be just about art. You can just make a statement with art where you want something to be pretty to look at and be interesting. But you can also use it as a guiding guide for something else as well. So um, when we're going through that process, those are things that the community should be thinking about as well. We'll do, when we get to that point in the project, which is not today, but when we get to that point, we'll do a presentation, whether it's for the public or just for your stakeholder groups, that will help guide the thinking and the objective and the goals for this project, whether it's for the downtown station or for the multimodal or for both of them. And the objectives for each of them might be different based on you know, who's riding them and what they're doing and then how they're, how they're utilizing the station. Uh, so some things for you guys to think about, but we'll, we'll, we'll prep you, we'll give you all kinds of stuff. Um, that, when you just saw there though, that was a massive undertaking. Yes, major structural elements that we had to support some of these really 40 foot tall, like wind sail, lit up panels and all kinds of really interesting stuff. Yeah, the, one, the one thing I would say is, is that there's the um, so our next our next light rail project is probably even more ambitious. Like I think the the artists um, uh, really took it to another level. Uh, it is it is Phoenix, so um, there is a uh, there is consideration with the idea that um, maybe at one point aliens had visited um, the landscape. So. Um, we're working with uh, uh, Peter. Uh, Peter Goldlust actually has these plasma cut, cut Martians that are going to be crawling all over the facility. Um, it's crazy, yeah. And so, um, but the point being is, um, I I am a firm believer in the artwork that the artwork should um, uh, you know capture the imagination that I think the future is in our young people. And um, the the kids uh, the kids really enjoy uh, the artwork, especially especially if it has bright colors. And the most successful artwork is the stuff that's actually integrated into the architecture. So I would just encourage you know thinking in the idea that it should be uh, a synergistic applied art versus just a, a, a an ad. Um, I think it, it it offers more longevity and. And um, I, I think it resounds with the community more. Ideally, if they can participate, that's even better because then there's ownership in the process. Well, some of this is happening. Do you have anything else you want to share, Tony? No, not yet. Okay. Oh, we got another hour here. We can tell, keep telling stories. <laughs> oh, I got stories. Yeah, we got lots of stories. <laughs> And I think it's also important to know, um, it's something to keep the juices flowing too for people, is that these things that we're talking about aren't necessarily things that should drive the cost of the project up. Like we're going to do windscreens. You know, we might add a little bit of cost by etching something into those windscreens, but you're going to have windscreens. You're going to buy those no matter what. It's just the type of material and what you do with them, right? Is so when you know Scott says like you know take advantage of the architecture when you're thinking about the art because it can you can you can stretch that budget pretty far. Oh, okay. Uh, so, well, yeah, so here, yeah, I mean, so here's another example of how you capture the, the history of Petersburg. Um, 
in a very simple statement, and maybe Scott can talk about that, just in the sidewalks. And the concrete. Right, so um, this, this was probably a little bit more ambitious in the fact that it was um, uh, Petersburg, Virginia is, um, was ultimately where after the Battle of Gettysburg, it's, it's steeped in, it was steeped in um, a lot of history in the Civil War. Uh, they, um, there, there's a lot of plaques and monuments um, on, on buildings around town. Um, but this was the evacuation place in the field hospital for Gettysburg. So uh, and this specific site was where uh, the field hospital actually resided. So what came out of the community meetings was that they were very interested in, in just telling some of the story of, of what, what happened. Um, but mostly from uh, not really the negative of the Civil War itself, but some of the positives. So some of the, um, there's, there's folks on the of, of famous um, Petersburgian folks that are on the windscreens. There's um, bronze cast medallions that continue the story that are in the pavement. And um, so, so if you come to the site and it's a big, big project because it takes up a whole city block. Um, but if, if you're interested in it, you can actually have a story told to you by walking the entire site. And, and I think that again, goes over well with the children um, and, and doing that. And it culminates actually the F, um, you know, the, there's a there's a tourism center in the in the northeast corner of the building. It's a two-story space that they've suspended some historical elements. So it tells the story and then ultimately culminates in something tangible that you know you can go into the facility and see. And this is a this is also an interesting facility for the community when you're talking about ideas and options and um, needs and wants from the community in a, in a space. So this facility has a library annex, a dry cleaner a bank, a credit union, um, a community policing, it has a community center where you can go and you can rent um, spaces to hold community functions. It has a, it is part of the downtown art walk on Friday nights. So throughout the facilities and much, I mean, the scale of the building is very, very large. Um, you, there's kiosks in there that um, have visiting artists displaying their, their artwork. Um, so this is, you know, this is a, a bit of a different uh, level than I've Yeah, and I, I probably should have mentioned like these railroad tracks are significant. Uh, the evacuation route from Gettysburg was actually because this was a railroad spur. So it was easy to um, put, um, put troops and, and wounded on the rail cars and actually bring them on. The, the rails are gone. Um, but we thought that would make a gesture. So this is just something simple. This is this is just cast concrete that we we did a um, we made a mold and um, just started. Um, the contractor actually pressed that into the ground all the way throughout this section of the project. And that carries into the trail on the inside. Right, it went right into the facility. So kids play. They bring their chalk and they play hopscotch on this too. Mm -hmm. It's super fun. Yeah, these are canopies. 
How many slips are here? Scott? I forget. Like 24? 16 to 20 or something. There's 24. There were 20, 20 local and uh, so this is this service is for Lee. Um, so there were six Greyhound slips as well. Yeah, it's a big Greyhound station. And it was a man station with Package Express. They had a very viable uh, Package Express um, business as well. Do you have any pictures of uh, Bainton? I have everything. You do have everything. Did you, did you download the entire photo well, library before we the office? I'm in our project assets. He's an, he's an open asset. This is why we, this are, are, the, are the folks on the call enjoying this or am I boring people? <laughs> <laughs> it might be worth the pause um, just to see yes. if we've jogged anything. I know, I mean, one of the things we're interested in is, um, is just thinking about different amenities and facilities we would have at the Bob Billing site and downtown. And so there's some obvious things like canopy and seating, um, but uh, maybe just want to pause and see if anybody has things they haven't seen or, or stuff that's come up through this art discussion that has intrigued you or um, you think might be things to explore either downtown or at, at the Bob Billing site. I'm, I'm curious if the structure will be energy efficient in regards to sustainability. Yeah, we, we, we talked about that. Um, because of its footprint, we have, we actually have high hopes. Because <laughs> uh, it, it, the program will not be uh, large um, it will uh, it will um, there will have uh, quite a bit of it will have quite a bit of um, you know while the space is enlarged um, there is um, a basic need of of uh, now I'm talking about, about buildings um, uh, toilet rooms um, there'll be some uh, conference space there'll be some offices um, uh, and you know, and obviously uh, ticketing, um, weather protection, things like that. So, because we have a small footprint, there is potential that we can look at stormwater capture, uh, ample daylighting. It won't have a high power usage. So, I think as we develop into the project, there's there's high hopes that um, you know we'll be able to um, uh, pursue some net zero strategies. Um, so that's very much top of mind. Just a question a few years ago is asking about um, electric buses. Has the thought changed on that and how is that incorporated in these stations? So I can maybe start in, in, in what? Uh, electric buses. buses. Oh, um, so maybe start with that one. So we've got uh, five electric buses coming in 2022 that we won in a 2020 low-no grant. Um, the plan for those buses and hopefully really for all future buses is for us to be able to do overnight depot charging and have our buses out on route all day without the need to charge in the middle of the day or on route. Um, the battery technology is getting better. Uh, batteries are getting smaller and lighter. So uh, we do hope that um, you know, range for buses will only get greater with, with that sort of style. 
Um, there's a really favorable uh, rate through Evergy for trains and electric vehicles that charge overnight. Um, the overnight charging rate is seven times lower than the rate to charge during the day. So um, there's a real incentive for us to try to, to do that model. Uh, we have asked every, or, um, our consultant team here to help us future-proof the facility at, at Bob Billings, especially for um, you know, things like conduit in case we need some, some on-route chargers or some overhead chargers or inductive chargers on site. Um, the, the reality is that infrastructure is big and it's expensive. And um, if, if we can avoid it, we hope to, but we're planning on the ability to do that if in the future we would, would need that for our service. It might be something as simple as, you know, we need to make sure the canopies are tall enough to accommodate a, a, an overhead pantograph charger that would, that would fit underneath those canopies. Um, like I mentioned, it might be as simple as conduit running to certain places that we, so we wouldn't have to tear up the whole, um, the whole site to, to lay new conduit, that sort of thing. We also um, sent in another application for this year's Lono grant for two more buses. So we're hopeful that that pans out. Um, the city has some pretty aggressive um, goals to uh, get municipal operations to renewable energy. So um, we're, we're hopeful that our future bus replacement is electric swapping out for diesel. Brenda Buchanan. Person joining Brenna. I can't read that. Brenda, Brenda, Brenda Buchanan. Hi, Brenna. You. Hi, how are you? Good. Feel free to chime in. <laughs> We're just talking about people's ideas and thoughts, concerns. Uh, wants, needs for both the uh, multimodal facility um, out near the campus, as well as for the new downtown transfer center. Um, so are you representing a citizen of the city or an agency? Uh, just, to, just as a citizen tonight, um, I, I recognize I'm on the HRC, um, but I'm here just as a, a citizen and a neighbor to the proposed uh, transportation hub. Which one, one downtown or the one out on, on Bob Billings? Uh, Billings and Crestline. Okay, excellent. Uh, for my information, Brenna, I'm not familiar. What is the HRC? Uh, Historic Resource Commission. Okay, thank you. That should have been obvious. <laughs> um, Brenna, would it help uh, for an overview of this project, or do you have any uh, certain concerns coming into it that you were aware of? Uh, no, I, I was anticipating being a passive uh, observer, so <laughs> to just kind of get caught up on what all is currently being proposed and what are the, the biggest issues um, and, and hurdles that the city is going to try to try to jump to have a more efficient transportation hub. Gotcha. Um, I'll take a run at some of that. And if you have questions that come out of that, we can go from there. So um, uh, this project is close to 10 years in the making, um, essentially us looking for a safer, better footprint to do the majority of our bus transfers. 
Um, a couple of studies in 2014 and 2018 looked at a variety of sites. We have uh, ultimately are moving forward with a primary transfer facility out at Bob Billington Crestline, um, looking to do 10, um, 10 bus bays for, for local service out there with an additional two that would accommodate um, intercity service like Greyhound or the K-10 connector that goes to Kansas City. Um, also looking at you know, bike, good bicycle and pedestrian connections out there, things like bike racks and uh, long-term bike parking like bike lockers. Um, even with development of that facility, we know we'll still need a handful of routes that transfer in the downtown area. So we're also looking at five uh, bus bays downtown with canopy and seating and uh, restroom for drivers um, <coughs> and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, issues are a little different in each of those places. Obviously, downtown uh, parking is a big issue we're trying to mitigate. Um, out in your area, I know some things we've heard from people are, are just, uh, you know, thoughts about traffic circulation or bus circulation, how that's going to work, uh, lighting, aesthetics, how it looks on that corner, that sort of thing. Th th those things have come up. Um, so I don't know if that jogs any questions, but that's kind of where we're at. This week has been a lot of stakeholder engagement and public meetings to have our consultants hear all of that information and incorporate it as they start putting some pen to paper for concept design. Um, and the intent is to synthesize all that information and, and help us get towards a, a concept that we would select later this summer um, in, in June. So um, I think that is a relative quick thing. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, if you had other thoughts let us know but you're you're welcome to remain passive we won't keep pulling you out yeah well, um I, I will say of my biggest concern is the uh traffic flow and it's already kind of an awkward intersection i just i'm really concerned about what's gonna happen to the traffic both there and along crestline you know people already cut through crestline and uh, other neighbors have complained about how fast people are going. You know, it's, it just seems like an odd, odd place for this to occur. So see what happens. Yeah, tra traffic study is certainly going to be part of what we're doing. Um, yeah, just, I mean, so a little more background on how we, how we got to that location there. It was one of, um, I believe six locations I identified in the 2018 study as potential spots. Um, there, in both 2018 and 2014, there was a focus on an area near 21st in Iowa. Um, in both cases, there, there were some pretty uh, significant neighborhood concerns over there with how um, that, that was going to be placed and operated. Um, the, the site of Bob Billings and Crestline is owned, um, that land is owned by KU. So it's a, another partnership opportunity between the city and KU and the different transit services we run. Um, so that, that's part of what led us to there as well as uh, just the central nature of that site in Lawrence and, and thinking about efficiencies with routes and transfers and um, uh, desire to, to help maybe some, some travel times by having the site there, uh, but certainly here, here and, and, and understand concerns about 
yeah, exactly how traffic's going to work and how bus movements are going to work. Hey, Adam, this is Quiz. I just wanted to <clears throat> point out to the group and um, probably more for Adam uh, just to check his email. I sent you um, email correspondence from uh, one of our former architects at KU that worked with Mark Reiske, Gary Moore, Ali, all of them. His name's Steve Scannell. Um, he was on, uh, I think, the public input number one call earlier today. Anyhow, just check it out and make sure that um, we're able to get that to, to the consulting team. They, uh, I think Steve had concerns in there too about traffic flow and, uh, but several other things, you know, restrooms, um, yada, yada. So um, just wanted to point that out and I sent that to you tonight and then see if we can get that to the group later on. Happening now, thank you, Chris. Yeah, both locations, we are looking at ways that we could utilize the approaches and uh, paths of the buses in order to help not congested issues any further, but also maybe help with calming techniques. Um, it's really important that we, we focus on the slow and steady um, integration of, of traffic when it comes to these buses and these maneuvers. So it's definitely a, a high priority. Uh, fast flying cars and buses trying to go in and out are two non-compatible items. So it's definitely at the forefront of trying to make that as safe as possible for both the cars and the buses. And the pedestrian. And well, yeah, in the ultimate terms, pedestrians, absolutely. Yeah, I'd also say um, for, for Brenna and any others concerned about uh, kind of routing and, and that, you know, how buses are going to approach the site, um, you know, definitely engage with us through the route redesign study too that is parallel to this project. There will be some public engagement upcoming in the next couple of weeks related to that. And I, I'm just looking at this other comment here through email. I know um, just concerns about bus movements along Crestline and I don't know that, that we'll have much of that. Um, uh, I think we'll, we'll mainly be along Bob Billings, but that'll certainly be something that comes up and we'll discuss through route redesign as well. Has anyone considered or acknowledged that there should be strategic design solutions to mitigate? Can you expand that comment, please? Mm -hmm. The new comment okay. uh, increased, so should mitigate and increase homeless population, which is tend to gather around bus hubs currently downtown. <laughs> and I'm assuming you're, the concern is that, that the homeless situation will be will will arrive at the Crestline Bob Billings ultimately. Yes. Uh, yes, in consideration we've we've talked quite a bit with the city and stakeholders about um, that issue. Um, there are things that we can do to um, discourage um, but you know part of it is security and policing as well. Um, but yes there will be some considerations made. 
things we've been looking into are you know the proper lighting the proper views through the stations um looking at mitigating encampment um, opportunities, but yet providing, um, you know, seating or pause for, for riders that may be needed. Um, looking at, um, you know, activating this site so that the constant um, traffic and utilization really is not something uh, that would support more of a static kind of um, camping activity. So we're trying to do it in ways that would benefit the rider and the legitimate use of what it is intended to do, but at the same time, um, discourage the illegitimate use like you're discussing. So, and that's a, it's a big trade-off and a, and a little bit of a give and take but definitely a high consideration. You know, and, and you know, I think the city is also doing, you know, I don't want to speak up to him here, Adam, but the city is also doing things right now to assist that population so that that is not an issue, you know, not, at least not a large impactful issue either, is my understanding, correct? There are certainly a number of um, different city departments and partners uh, working on getting people to the right services and finding solutions for um, uh, to make people's experience downtown comfortable. I do, I guess I would add to that conversation that while there are certainly um, a number of people who are homeless and, and use the bus system to get around, I do also think the, the gathering downtown is because there are services downtown, there are amenities downtown, there are commercial activities downtown. Uh, there is uh, not any of that at the Bob Billings and Crestline site. So um, this, um, I'm not, okay. uh, this is Brenna. Let me uh, expand upon where that comes from. It was actually uh, my husband who brought it up. Um, and I, I, um, I'm treading lightly on this topic because I, I know the city acknowledges and understands and is trying to also at the same time do the best that they can to um, provide as much as they can as support as possible. Um, but just in the last, you know, kind of few months that the buses kind of ended around eight o'clock and we're not able to always get people that had showed up for the hotel back out that, um, and they went into the neighborhoods. Uh, we're still seeing issues with some of that today it, it just seems like there's been a noticeable difference between winter and spring of cars breaking in people wandering the streets more people saying you know hey there's a strange character going by um it, it's just it's been noticeable including a lot more cars getting broken into and i don't know that there's a direct correlation with that but it, it's it's put a spotlight on this um, it, because we are seeing it. And so it's not so much an issue at the hub, it's creating the, uh, having to migrate out into, because there's a lot of wooded areas in this neighborhood. Like pretty much every couple blocks, there's a good strip of solid wooded area. And we still have deer that walk through our yard. So, um, 
there's just a lot of opportunity. Um, I guess on, in addition to that, I think I'd be more concerned about, are we looking ahead far enough? Are we really planning out enough for all the potential changes that are gonna be happening with transportation in the next even 10 years? Um, I know our bus fleet is kind of a, a it's not static, um, but at the same time, does the ridership demand the size and kind of buses? And is those kind of buses actually even gonna exist in 10 years? Or is everybody gonna be taking an autonomous vehicle? Um, I, I just don't know. I, I would like to see a plan be flexible enough to account for future innovation and transportation that we're not considering today. Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, certainly, you know, through route redesign study this year, we are looking at, we're going to take a hard look at um, on-demand microtransit services. So the idea of, um, you know, fixed route being a solution that works in certain areas or along certain corridors that have high enough ridership to demand uh, those types of vehicles. Um, but there, I think there are certainly some areas in Lawrence that that we do need to think about more flexible on-demand option. So uh, that kind of microtransit service where you have um, uh, transit that you can summon with your phone and, and have kind of point-to-point -point service. We, we're looking at things like that and thinking about how, how those services would interact with the hub. How would uh, different um, micromobility services interact with uh, these two transfer areas? So, so things like uh, scooter share and bike share. Um, you know, there's there's a variety of um, companies that do uh, car sharing services where you can unlock a car with your your phone and, and use one when you when you need it. Um, and I've seen some cities take on that as kind of part of their service to extend kind of first mile, last mile. So there's a lot of different things. I think you're right. I think you said you had a good phrase there, like in anticipating future transportation that we're not doing at all right now. Uh, it's, that's challenging, but we are trying to think about it. Um, uh, autonomous is a tricky one. That's, that's one keep, people keep talking about is around the corner and, and uh, hasn't quite come around the corner yet. I know um, that, that we do need to be thinking about it. It's, uh, it's just to what extent and what kind of what's our facility set up need to be to accommodate that type of service. So those are great thoughts. Yes, the autonomous vehicles is a, is a big thing within the entire public transit industry as well as micro transit right now, which we're talking with Adam and others about the programming of the facility and flexible bays for buses so that in the future we know we can accommodate all these different things that are to come, but it's kind of a bit of a crystal ball science right now. Uh, there's so many different opportunities, options, issues, and not a lot of precedent here in the United States. And we're looking to Europe and other countries who are actually implementing this already to see what they're doing. So we can inform some of the flexibility in our designs, but um, autonomous vehicles in transit is probably a pretty long way off here in the US right now, as it stands on a large scale, that is. Um, although we are doing pilot, we, Wendell, we are doing pilot projects with several private universities 
to operate on transit circulators that are um, that are autonomous on their on their campuses. Um, so when we can share those ideas, you know, those things with you. But um, yeah, I, I like hearing the microtransit. I, I think you guys are dead on to what I was alluding to as far as the solutions that already exist. You know, the the technology is there for the autonomous. It's I, I really feel it's the policies that that are lagging. Um, and I just that's that's kind of uh, anticipate and I know autonomous isn't really so much as a large transit solution, but um, you know, there are places that are modeling that. I think you're right, that's not a good place. But the micro transit, I, I really liked what I was hearing with everything you said about micro transits and building some of that into the portions of the routes that make sense. And I would just add that we kind of, we're, we're set up well to make that transition if we need to. We do have some of our fixed route fleet that are the smaller cutaway vehicles. So um, vehicles that, that could lend themselves to being like an on-demand microtransit already. So I think we're, we're, we're at a good point right now to, to transition if we want to or need to because uh, we don't have exclusively, you know, 40 foot buses. I think we've got a, a mixed fleet where we can kind of decide which direction we're gonna, we need to uh, prepare for. We had a, just as additional background, I know we had some recent discussions with the state about, you know, they have some annual grant opportunities and we were uh, just floating the idea of, um, uh, any pilot projects related to autonomous vehicles, and they, they pretty much said uh, that state policy is not ready for that. <laughs> um, they, they're, the state's doing some work with connected vehicles, so vehicles that interact with um, infrastructure at intersections and things like that, uh, or interact with each other, vehicles that interact with each other, but um, autonomous vehicles, the, the state of Kansas uh, uh, is is not set up well for us to start experimenting in that realm yet. Has there been any talk about partnering with KU and some of their engineering and or like the healthcare design? Um, I know worked with Ford for a while on creating certain things that would be included into cars. So like a car would know if somebody's having a heart attack or uh, low sugar episodes, something like that. Um, I don't know if there's been any talk about partnering to try to exploit the KU and getting around having it be an academic in Denver instead of a municipality. Yeah, I mean, we certainly, we, uh, we partner and coordinate with KU on a lot of stuff. So there's, I think there's great opportunity there for us to think about those things. Um, I think one, one of the realities for us currently is, is just with uh, this project and, and some others that we're working on and, and pandemic, we, uh, things like that. I don't know that we've had the, unfortunately I haven't had the brain space to be as forward thinking creative on pushing forward with uh, partnerships in that way. But uh, I think you're right that, you know, a huge research university is a thing that we'll always, uh, from the city perspective, be interested in thinking about how we work with the, learn new things to try new things, that sort of stuff.
We did bring tricks with us if you want to play some games. <laughs> Transit trivia. I have a comment. Yeah, um, maybe this is more from a citizen standpoint than um, the sustainability office, but um, maybe it is related to um, climate change. And, um, and in regards to the houseless folks, um, I, I was thinking about Brenna's comment and um, I'm curious if there is a, a role in transit to assist with those folks that did miss the bus and don't have anywhere else to go, especially during extreme weather. I know um, there was a gentleman that passed away during the extreme weather this winter in town. And um, I, I wonder if there's some kind of role, like maybe an emergency button for assistance um, in, in those cases for um, an emergency bus to be able to take someone uh, to their destination, especially since the climate is going to continue to be extreme weather, it's extreme heat and extreme cold. So it's something to think about. That's a great contributing uh, thought. Um, I think one of the things that we, we always want to look at is ways for security to be summoned at, at all these stops and at these transfer locations. Um, you know, again, it could be not only weather, but you know, like you said, medical or even worse, hopefully never a you know, criminal type activity that we would need to provide a connection with the appropriate authorities. So um, I can speak on the design side that we always try to at least provide that emergency connection. And um, Adam, I think um, as far as for you for the service side and how that would play a role you could speak probably on that a little bit. Yeah, so um, a couple different ideas come to mind with that discussion. So uh, Lawrence Transit is the lead agency on um, the Douglas County Emergency um, Emergency Service Function uh, 1. So we kind of coordinate the emergency transportation services in the event of of transportation emergencies. So there's a lot, as you can imagine, a ton of coordination work done, uh, you know, a little over a year ago as, as we all um, started dealing with the pandemic. So we were in close coordination with a lot of agencies at that time. Uh, certainly if there's acute issues, the either the county or police department or something like that might reach out to us if they need a warming bus or a cooling bus during extreme temperature times. And we um, act quickly to provide that. Um, uh, so, so we're engaged in those ways. Um, yeah, I, I like Taryn's comments about thinking about the facilities themselves and how we might leverage um, ways to signal emergencies or respond to emergencies more quickly at those facilities. Uh, it's, it's oftentimes, you know, learning about it, we're, we're happy to respond right away, you know, as soon as we learn about it. From what I gather, because um, I don't want to throw anybody, pun intended, under the bus on this one, um, but when my husband inquired about, you know, why the bus can't just drop these people off 
literally like a block and a half down the road. Like it's, it's the last stop of the night. Just go ahead and drop them off like right at the hotel instead of making them walk, you know, that distance. Um, and basically came down to just policy and red tape um, that they couldn't get the route changed fast enough to do that. So A, that was part of the problem where they get dropped off at the bus station and then bus leaves. They walk to the hotel to find out that there's no hotel rooms left. So now they got nowhere to go. They're not going to walk back to the bus station to hit a button that says an emergency or, you know, you know, pull the cord for the next stop. You know, that they're just not going to do that. They disperse into the neighborhoods. Um, So it really kind of comes down to having the flexibility, having the bus driver, I guess, be the one that initiates, um, in an additional ride or I I know some some of the people that kind of have eyes more on that area they were even you know sending ubers over there when they could try to get an uber um which apparently is not as easy these days um just out of being a concerned citizen so to me it comes as much as you know I'm an architectural historian I love seeing the built environment have those mitigating solutions but I think in certain situations it comes down to just the people and training and then having resources for them to connect to because I I think there's certain situations where people aren't going to help themselves unless it's like literally just handed to them on a silver platter I I don't want to be too mean to, to some of those homeless, but I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking and there's, you know, they're not going to walk that, that distance just to go hit a button. So I guess what I'm saying is don't look to the architecture and the design to solve all the things. Some of it's going to be um, education, <laughs> and um, training. Challenges. You're talking about a, a whole community <clears throat> social <throat> issue that 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 resonates in almost every community. Um, as, and it's not only it's, it's not one aspect that's really going to be the game changer um, in that solution. So yeah, it's a, it's a you brought it up, you know, it's a hard conversation, and, and wish we could all fit, fix that in this room. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely something to keep bringing up. I think within your community at at a larger scale uh, to really address. I agree. I just think this is this is going to be a really big change in our transportation. And so I think this is kind of one of those moments where those bigger questions should be looked at as a way to help drive that cultural change. Personal opinion. Oh, definitely noted. <laughs>
does play a big part in the whole cultural circle. So, absolutely. Are there any issues, Scott, at hand that you want to ask those people about? Are they also in chat? Um, Am I the only citizen no. here? No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but there's not a lot. Of, I, I'm actually kind of surprised that there's only a couple of people here this evening. Um, but that, you know, we had, we had a much more robust. We had a very, very large group, Brenna, um, for the noon to 1.30 meeting, 33. <laughs> we had 33 people on total on that call. All right, and we will, um, one thing to note is we will be posting the, um, both of the public meetings so that people who weren't able to miss them can still understand what the conversation was and the different issues raised. Um, so that'll be something uh, hopefully uh, in the near future, Brenda, you could be able to check in on what those, those other meetings look like and um, kind of see some of that conversation too. And I, I was just reading over the email. Um, yeah, that we got from uh, from Steve. Um, so along those lines, you know, I, I I'd be curious in hearing, you know, from either Bob Billings or the, um, you know, the, and you know, we we started off with this, but I know we've added some folks, but just like you know, general amenities. Um, I, I don't. Architecture rarely can solve um, social issues. They can be a um, they can be a willing um, partner in that, and certainly um, the architecture can inform some of those policies. But what about what about amenities that will make this as good a facility as it can be? I guess to me, the questions would be more about programming uh, of what the hub, who are the amenities intended for? And, um, you know, are they for those who are waiting for the bus? And what could they potentially need? Or is it more of a true kind of a pass through where I'm seeing things about like uh, connection to bike routes and these other things? Yeah, I, I think there's just a lot of programming questions that need to be asked as, to define who the amenities are truly intended for. Well, I think that's kind of the, the thought process now is trying to think of who might want some of those amenities and what they might want. So we have a couple of different groups here. Um, and I, I throw out some of the ideas that have been discussed to kind of give examples. Um, so. Focusing on the ridership perspective, let's just say, um, charging, mobile charging, so that their phone is always charged or that a wheelchair can be charged. Um, again, talking about water, uh, potentially some restroom facilities, snack, vending, or even some wayfinding um, for them to get around town and um, look at the events and, and help with real-time following of the buses and the vehicles and the schedules. 
So that would be examples for the riders that they have given as something that is important for them. And then you can look at it from a larger scale as um, being close to the university, how can it be asset maybe to students in the university? Um, some of those things have been incorporating that already planned bike route, how that connects, um, the pedestrian um, connections that are available, how that will connect with the KU services. Obviously that could be looked at with the route um, study that they're doing concurrently. Um, but then also how it plays a role in that West Campus Bridge um, into the community and connecting with the lead center there. So we've heard some commentary about that. Um, at the same time, we've also talked about the employees themselves um, for the group, as far as, you know, these bus drivers are running on routes all day. Sometimes they, they would like some, some ice and a snack on the road, um, as well as a, a place to get out of the chair and take a break for, you know, a couple minutes while they can. Um, and having the right working space and working environment so that they can help with their patrons and their riders as much as possible. Um, and so these are the things that we're trying to consider all the groups and the users. And when we say users, it's, it's not just the bus riders, it's everybody that might actually be at those facilities or around those facilities. So that's why we asked that broad question because maybe there's something that we're not thinking about or a different type of user or a different type of amenity that we're not, we haven't heard yet or not considering. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the question. It's, it's not a pointed question, not meant to necessarily have an answer, but definitely be open for, for further thought. <laughs> I would also say there's people, I mean, we have a lot of people who are using the bike and bus together right now. So I think this is just another opportunity to further connect those modes of transportation. Um, so there's an existing shared use path along the site. And I think a part of the hope is just to make that connection functional and easy. And if, if you're a person who bikes and also uses the bus, is this an easy way to switch between those two uh, modes of transportation? Um, I have a comment. Um... I think it will be, um, I believe um, this comment is more of a, uh, for me as a citizen, um, I think it will be important to include racial equity in the plan, particularly um, when there was a mention of interesting characters and um, that, um, that could be interpreted as many things, but um, if there is some kind of safety that it should be also included with recent movements, um, especially with um, in relation to Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, um, to think about those things. Um, and also um, in regards to Part of the homeless population is also single mothers with children, and I do believe that they sh um, they should be able to have city space to to take a rest, and uh, that um, they are also bus users and um, nonprofits like Family Promise um, do a fantastic job at assisting them, but they do use the buses and having space to rest and just be out of 
the sun or weather would be important to have as a welcoming space. Absolutely. I think to go further, on your point, um, that should be provided for all users, like you said, <laughs> equity across the board. So definitely something to be considered. Yeah, and, and Dana Ortiz was on one of the other calls earlier talking about some of those things from Family Promise. So we, we have some of her comments as well. And this is, um, you know, so early on in this stage, it's, you know, again, more of an eye-opening process for us to make sure we can think of um, anything. And this is the open forum conversation like we've had, and we really appreciate it because, um, again, it's, it's the kickoff. It's the time to make sure that we're, we're in touch with with the community and, and making sure that we're actually discussing and addressing a lot of this, like you're mentioning. So the, so um, let's see, Brenna. Um, yes, so we do have a full staff of um, engineers and architects that are working on this in conjunction with the city and with KU. Mm -hmm. um, we just had a meeting actually yesterday to talk about resiliency and the environment. Uh, we actually, on our staff at Wendell, so we are the consultants been hired by the city. On our staff, we actually have three scientists that have ecology degrees. So they will be looking um, at all of these different types of um, potential impacts and how to mitigate them. Um, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. It did. Um, I do want to go back to what Connie was saying, though, um, and frame it as not just how do we include those people, but um, instead of just how do we cater to ridership, how do we create a transportation transportation system that increases ridership? I, I, we've seen, if I recall, a pretty <laughs> pattern of decline. How do we capture not just equity for everybody, but make it enticing for those who have given up on it to come back. And we want to take that from a policy perspective. You want us to talk about it from a transit perspective. Um, yeah, I, I can start. Um, so from our perspective, I mean, we can, there's, uh, there's a defined amount of budget we have each year through state and federal formula funds, through um, uh, sales tax and through fares. Oh. And it's, it's our, um, so operating in kind of a system that, uh, that generally stays about the same. We've, we've seen like a little bit of growth each year, essentially keeping pace with, um, with inflation. We really have choices about how to best spend that to serve the most people and kind of to capture the ridership you're talking about. Um, a big component of that is service. You know, the more practical the bus is, the more uh, routes you have, the more frequently it comes, the, the more practical it is for people to take transit. Um, the, another side of that coin is, is the experience, the, the actual infrastructure people are on. Are the buses nice? Are they, are they, are they really old buses or are they ones that have been replaced at a reasonable time and are in good shape? I'm, I'm gonna uh, hit pause. Yeah. I like your answers. It was more uh, theoretical and food for thought. 
as you digest and synthesize all this other stuff. Sure. I was just throwing yeah. it out there. Yep. I guess where I was going was I think the development of, of um, this the facility about building the press line and the facilities downtown can set the standard for the experience people have on transit. And I think are part of that puzzle, helping us capture more people who it's a, it's a really good experience to take the bus. So they're going to do it. It's not the whole puzzle, but it's part of it. Perfect. And that relates to some of the design things we've talked about too, is in making it safe and inviting and, and invigorating and enjoyable. Um, we talked about, you know, interaction of people and, and really making that experience good from all of those perspectives. So um, that's where we hope to capture and include those types of design features that influence that as well. Right. So there's two types of riders, right? You have people who ride the bus out of necessity or choice. They don't want, you know, they don't want to own a car, so this is it. They or they can't afford to own a car or whatever. They take public transit. Um, maybe it's their policy. They want to be environmentally friendly, whatever. Those are the choice riders. Usually, you know, one of the things that we are thinking about all the time is obviously equity for all ridership, but finding the the um, balance of what we need to include into these facilities or the surrounding areas of these facilities for accessibility and to bring the comfort levels that choice riders, those people who choose to take public transit because of whatever their reason is, so that they come back and you increase your ridership for that. So you'll see a lot of the conversation will be around what do we must have here for the people who are here every day because this is their form of transportation versus those who we want to attract to come back to or to stay on public transit. So different types of amenities serve different types of riders. Um, and that's true of public transit universally, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, so you'll hear that term choice rider thrown out. That's what that's referring to. Um, Connectivity, safety. So like in the downtown station, we want to have you know complete streets where we've got connectivity between the station and the core business entertainment district where people feel comfortable walking from the bus station downtown in the dark and back and forth. So when we look at that bus terminus, we're going to be looking at the global block. How do we connect these people to where they want to go and where they need to go? Um, and if Bob Billings, we're going to look at different things because it's a little bit of a different structure out there, right? Um, just because you're not in an urban core. Um, but we're still going to be looking at those things. So safety, connectivity, accessibility, um, you know, future opportunities. Like we've even talked about that the, the lead, the performance center being right there. Like now all of a sudden that becomes a destination for people to maybe to consider to choose the ride bus to there. So they don't have to drive their car up and park in the lead performance center um, for an event. So, you know, providing that, that choice, I think, really helps give those options for people to really say, you know, I'm going to take an active role in, in my community and in, this, in the sustainability of it. And, and that's definitely part of the discussion. Right. And those things lead to, like, you know, add a partner in touch with or the university, maybe taking an initiative to have a circular that runs between those event centers and the multimodal center so that you're moving partially the bosses of people who might be coming to the city out to out there for a um, event, but don't want to sit in, in traffic for. I'm told if it's pretty congested out there when there's a, when there is a um, 
some of the lot of those facilities. And I can, I, I, I can imagine just by looking at you, you can imagine there's not very many ways in and out, right? Um, and they're pretty big facilities. So, you know, when you provide the option and the opportunity, it can change the way that people use the system. So that's an interesting point because like uh, Adam had talked about, they are doing a route um, assessment right now and, and this is actually concurrent with that. So the good thing is that this, this gets to influence a lot of that development and, and definitely future development or future improvements to come on that <laughs> forefront. <laughs> So you just mentioned that you're doing the route assessment now. Um, I lived on Stratford minus seven years of my life, 40 years. Um, in that time, I haven't really seen buses on Stratford. We're, we're one block long. We're this weird nuance. <laughs> we're literally one block long. Um, and in the last couple months, probably not even, like, four weeks, I've seen more buses come down Stratford and two of them park in front of our house where if we needed to leave, we'd have to ask them to move, um, which is completely odd. Is this, and we joked that it was probably exactly that the, the route's getting figured out. Should we be anticipating buses going down our street when in 40 years they never have? This is Margretta DeFries. I'd like to speak to that. I'm from KU Transportation Services. I, that sounds very unusual and we should definitely check that out from an operational standpoint, but it's not our goal to go down all residential streets in the neighborhood, no. My question was gonna be, was it um, air transit vehicles? Was it Mm -hmm. All the above. We've seen USD 497 full size bus. And I think that one, that one was so completely odd and random and just so weird. I actually did call the police because um, it lasted for almost 30 minutes and it just was weird. Um, the next one was a KU bus. Never seen one of those. Um, and it stopped. This is about what? 5 36 o'clock in the morning so that six six ish um which that was before the buses even run so i thought that was really weird um but they didn't hang out that long um and then we had a shorter like a smaller bus uh, but they stayed on university for about 20 minutes and then another usd 497 bus Uh, on the city side of things, I can certainly move back with our staff. I know um, the description about the shorter bus sounds to me like a paratransit service, so a door-to-door -door service for people who qualify for um, that type of service. Um, but not knowing for sure, we can we can follow up and see what might have been going on. Well, and, and that's uh, I was just think trying to plan ahead if if you guys are looking at rerouting and that maybe that's why we're seeing more buses go down our street. You know, that, that's definitely gonna, I think, get more neighbors engaged in these conversations when we see nuances like that. It could also be a construction thing Sure, too. and I can, um, to set 
some expectations for that uh, route redesign uh, work. So we we change our routes one one time per year um, in August first of each year. So before the university calendar begins, um, we are are just beginning that process to look at changes that would go into effect in August of 2022. So um, there won't, uh, you know, we'll have some uh, slight revisions to service starting in August 2021. We do annual updates to routes, um, not, not in the Stratford area, um, but um, yeah, so, so, so there won't be, you know, through the route redesign study, we're not going to be uh, frequently altering routes during that time. We'll be, we'll be discussing and, and drawing and planning them, but, but not to go into effect until August of 2022. Um, but certainly, yes, yeah, if we can get neighborhood engagement on what they do and don't want to see through that, that would be really helpful for us. But, but Adam, with all that even said, now I'm curious why there might be a KU bus there at 5.30 or 6 in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, it was really bizarre. You know, the the USD 497, that's obviously the, the Lawrence Public School District, which would not be the Lawrence Transit or the KU on Wheels bus system. But do you know what day that was, Brenna? Um, God, it was <laughs> COVID brain uh, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. We, we, we can at least ask our provider on the... <clears throat> on the KU bus and try to track down something on that. That early, I'm not sure what would be going on, but unless it was a training deal or something, but we'll, we'll look into it. Yeah, they literally just stopped in front of our house and then played on their phone for like close to 10, 15 minutes, pulled around the corner on the university, just up the hill, just enough that they were almost out of sight, but we could still see the ass end of the bus um, and sat there for like another 10, 15 minutes. This is Margretta again. Brenna, if you can maybe look back at anything that would trigger a memory for what day that actually was and email that to KU on wheels at ku.edu, we would definitely like to look into that a little more. Yeah, I could. Uh, I'll, I'll try to work on that. <laughs> I'll definitely Just, let you know. If you, if, or if you notice it again, send us a note and if you can catch it the number on the bus it's posted on all four sides yep. uh, that'd be super helpful will do so this process is very early on we're doing a lot of this gathering this discussion um, now but in june we will be posting two more public um opportunities um, for a public discussion that will include actual designs presented at that time. So there is more opportunity for specifics um, as well as, uh, you know, reacting to options. Um, so we will have three options for downtown and then three options for Bob Billings. So um, while this may seem generic, it's, it's actually early and we love that this input's getting put in so early. Um, and that information on the public meetings in June, once that's set, will be set out um, to get actual more 
uh, pointed um, discussion, even though this is just as helpful. Um, so this, there's more to come um, in the development of this, and we welcome that as well in the future. So um, I, we do have five minutes left, and I don't want to uh, end this without giving even more opportunity for anything that you see of reactions or discussion on those notes that are up there. Um, again, also there's the chat too. Um, so yeah, again, like the five, five minute call, I'll make sure you get your voice heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also I'll just say, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to accept, um, if you think more about this and have thoughts in the next couple of days or the next week, just please um, email those to me. Um, I'll maybe ask somebody to put my email in the chat. Um, but I'm happy to, to facilitate getting that to the consultant and, and getting it included. Um, we'll probably do it in a similar method that we did for these. So there will be a news release. We'll put it out on social media. Um, that'll come out through the city of Lawrence as well. So we'll, it'll it'll get out there. Um, if uh, hopefully if folks are um, are able to uh, follow public transit news through the city subscriptions, they'll they'll, they'll get it directly in their inbox that way. But um, it should get out on the airwaves in a few different ways so that people can have a heads up. And, and anybody that's on this will be getting, that came to this will get stuck, contacted as well. All right, well, thank you everyone for joining. Um, yes. And yeah, please uh, please keep in touch with us. This is, we're very excited about this project and I've gotten great ideas throughout this week. So looking forward to next steps. <laughs>